Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation at the intersection of remembering, belonging, and place. I'm your host, Rabbi Miriam Turlinchamp. The framework for the podcast is the relationship of Walter Brueggemann, Peter Block, and John McKnight. For the last couple of episodes, we've been bringing you conversations with practitioners who are enacting the common good in local, tangible, and relational ways. But because of the current situation, we wanted to return to the wisdom of John. It's a lesson for us as to what's life like if we can't get together. It's an experience in loneliness. Walter. This is soul nourishment. Peter. It is. So we'll keep doing this. This conversation was recorded at the outside of the crisis, where things were beginning to be closed and canceled. We jump into the conversation with Peter asking Walter a bold question. Everything that's being canceled has a commercial dimension to it. People who make their living serving communities. Do you think, Walter, this could be either a cry out or an answer from God? I think that's a very bold, prophetic way to put it, but yes, I do. In the Bible, I think that's how they were able to read things because they read their own life experience through what they took to be the reality of God. So yes, creation is ordered to finally limit and turn back excessiveness. And uh, I don't know whether you could argue that uh, excessiveness of commercialization or excessiveness of meetings or excessiveness of things, but uh, this is a curbing of that kind of excessiveness. What What I wonder about is whether there's a middle ground between those big meetings, John, and being alone, that maybe there is still uh, safety in a very local neighborly economy that lets you not only walk your dog, but uh, interact with your neighbors. Maybe that's still a very low risk point of uh, interaction. Isn't it the the contrast between Gesellschaft and Gemeinschaft, that, that your neighborhood was a Gemeinschaft that felt safe to you? I've got an experiment going in, uh, of all places, Menasha, Wisconsin, the most intensive effort I've ever seen to get everybody on a block, on a couple of blocks, to declare what they could share with kids and then begin to connect kids with the adults in terms of a shared culture and knowledge. That's going pretty well. But they had a gathering, and the question they asked was, why do you do this to all the people who are involved? What's the reason for you? The reasons are really diverse. A reason that appeared two times is, I do this because I finally feel safe. I am in contact with my neighbors, the young people, and that makes me feel safe, and I didn't used to feel safe. And and incidentally, from a research point of view, they're right. (laughs) They are safer. I think uh, the the Exodus story is a final recognition that subsuming oneself to the dominant regime is unjust and unhealthy and not right, and a resolve that I'm not going to live that way. Uh, your, your connection, Peter, it may be that this virus is a moment in which we might critically reflect on how our lives have been defined by the dominant culture, and it's unjust and it's unhealthy, and I don't have to live that way. But the alternative for almost all of us is not to uh, retreat into a column in the desert, but to find an alternative community. And maybe this is a moment when we can 
imagine what that alternative community is like that doesn't subscribe to that unhealth and injustice. Uh, since, since our departure is not likely to be geographical, uh, maybe it is a departure from our field of perception that has been uh, colonized and yeah. misshapened. Well, I see that in um, this idea of an asset-based approach to neighborhood is uh, very, very difficult to uh, get people to live with. And the reason is that people are constantly saying to me, it's a different way of thinking. They don't say it's a different way of acting. Now, I'm interested in the acting, but they the feedback is always, you know, some people who are better educated say it's a paradigm shift. But to move from a deficit to an asset way of proceeding in action is preceded by a shift in perception. What is here? What has meaning here? We are taught to see some things and we are taught not to see some other things. We're, we're taught not to see the assets. We're, we're taught to see the deficits. We're taught to perceive the world through our scarcities. You don't yet have the product that you need to make you safe and happy. You still lack it. And if you're in the world of scarcity, comes with it a mentality of competition. And that's another great shift, to move from competition to cooperation. In Psalm 23, that we usually translate, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Hebrew really says, who says, the Lord is my shepherd, I don't lack anything. We are schooled in our lacks. In the Hebrew, it is, I don't lack anything. It shall not want a way of restraining my greed. Yeah, and it is, I suppose, an affirmation that I am surrounded by assets. The Lord has has given me plenty. My cup runneth over. It's not only half full rather yeah. than half empty. It's completely full. I already have surplus. Why seek more? That's right. That's right. Yep. I like the notion that the stock market is not an economic measure. And so the lead, everyone wants to know how much is the market going down. And if it's not an economic measure, then it must be a measure of perception. Perception is how well are the wealthy doing? And I want to be that. And the virus, you know, and all of its variations says it's not going to happen. What are the signs of factors that lead us to a perception that I shall not want or I don't lack anything? How do we make that journey in our perceptions? Well, I think you have many neighborly festivals of abundance. In the Christian tradition, that's what the Eucharist is supposed to be about. It is uh, ample bread and ample wine. But what the establishment has done is turn it into a ceremony about sin and guilt rather than a ceremony about abundance. It's a complete distortion. It's a recognition that it's all a gift. It's not an achievement or a possession, unlike the stock market, which is an achievement or a possession. Speaking of, of uh, festivals of abundance, I heard a rabbi quoted this week that's saying all the uh, Jewish rituals are about one thing. They tried to kill us. They couldn't do it. Let's eat. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly you could say that in Judaism, suffering has been us a lot, especially in modern times. What is it that has allowed Judaism to still 
I think, embody a celebration of who we are, what we've done, and where we're going. Well, I think that uh, even for the most secular Jews, that identity is rooted in some peculiar connection to whatever is holy. The, the conviction that, that no kind of historical abuse can erase that connection. I think that gets articulated in all kinds of unfortunate ways, uh, but I think it is an anchor of identity that has withstood every historical pressure. That's a beautiful thought. Whereas the dominant prosperous white people have no such rootage, and for such a rootage, uh, we have substituted our capacities, our successes, our wealth, our power, all of that. What we are witnessing now has no staying power. Well, that's a, a beautiful thought. You say the holy, the holiness that undergirds Judaism, the sense of the holy. And I might say that God is with us, especially with us. That's right. So that the, the uh, refrain in uh, the Hebrew Bible in the, in the time of the deportation and exile is, do not fear, I am with you. With you, yes. That's God with us. And how powerful that is, is we know that in spite of the Holocaust. That's right. I mean, obviously, the, the response of the Holocaust had Jews all over the map, but uh, Eli Wazel, for example didn't turn out to be an atheist. Rather, he argued that you have to argue with God, you have to dispute with God about this, which I suppose is an alternative to uh, giving up the whole claim. And so Jews historically specialized Peter in the cry. The cry out to God was a way of staying connected to God, even though it was confrontive and disputatious, it was a way. Was it confronting God or beseeching God? Both. So I think that the, in the biblical Jewish tradition, that the cry to God is an insistence that for the moment, I, not God, I am the senior partner in this relationship, and you shut up and listen to me. They don't sustain that, and finally, the relationship works back to where God is a senior partner, but it is having the chutzpah for the moment to invert that relationship. Wow. That's what's required. You've been listening to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation at the intersection of remembering, belonging, and place. As we consider the power of being rooted in our role in bringing about the common good, we hope these words by Padraig Otuma will help us find courage during this time. It's called the facts of life. That you were born and you will die. That you will sometimes love enough and sometimes not. That you will live only to yourself. That you will get tired. That you will learn most from the situations you did not choose. That there will be some things that move you more than you can say. That you will live, that you must be loved that you will avoid questions most urgently in need of your attention, that you began as the fusion of a sperm and an egg of two people who were once strangers and may well still be, that life isn't fair, that life is sometimes good and sometimes better than good, that life is often not so good, that life is real, and if you can survive it well, survive it well with love and art and meaning given where meaning scarce, 
that you will learn to live with regret, that you will learn to live with respect, that the structures that constrict you may not be permanently constraining, that you'll probably be okay, that you must accept change before you die, but you'll die anyways. So you might as well live, and you might as well love. You might as well love, you might as well love. Let's return to the conversation as Walter continues to discuss our role in bringing about the common good. At one point, Peter and Walter mentioned Damon, who was interviewed on the last episode of season two. You think about the Exodus departure, God delivered them from Egypt, but Moses is the guy that had to go to Pharaoh. That is, that is the, the assumption of the narrative is that Moses couldn't have gone had not God dispatched him. But yeah. God couldn't have delivered him had not Moses gone. There's a uh, archaic verse in the book of Judges where the, the woman Deborah sings of a great triumph over the Canaanites. And the, the poetry in two lines says, we celebrate the victory of God, the victory of the peasants. And it, and it says both. It cannot be one or the other, but it's always both. You know, I also wonder, I've always been sort of suspicious of uh, people who are talking about something that's pretty bad. And they end it by saying, well, let's pray on it. It always seems to me it's a substitute for acting on injustice. So prayer is not enough. If that means let's set this in the orbit of the holiness of God, that could be a very positive thing. If that means you do it, we're not going to bother with it, then that's a resignation. You know, Damon now is talking about his transformation from Moses to Joshua in terms of his role. Does that make any sense to you? I would think that the, the Moses story is about the departure. The Joshua story is, what do we do after we get there? Damon is saying, well, we're here now. What do we do and how do we continue the emancipatory story that Moses initiated because something else is now required? So that makes sense to me. I assume you are aware that the name Jesus is simply another rendering of Joshua. Both of them come from the verb save. You you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people. So Joshua saved uh, his people from enslavement in Canaan. That no doubt is Damon's vocation is to be saving his people from enslavement in Hamilton County. So departure carries within it the demand for some kind of creative emancipation or some kind of what to do. Yeah, which I think means the construction of alternative institutions. That's what we're trying to do with this common good collective is to bring together these alternative institutions. Yep, that's right. The final chapter of the book of Joshua is that Joshua calls his people back to the original narrative because they've been seduced. I just was reading this morning a phrase from Edward Zaid, the great Palestinian, and uh, he used the phrase, which I had never heard before, the permission to narrate, and Saeed claimed the permission of Palestinians to narrate in the face of Israel, and Joshua in chapter 24 claimed the permission to narrate the Israelite memory in the face of the Canaanites. So to narrate that alternative narrative uh, is elemental to creating alternative institutions. It probably has to be claimed. It can't be given. 
And you, you think of all the places where uh, white culture, like in Canada, where white culture tried to stamp out local narratives. They, they denied the permission to narrate. And I suppose uh, the recovery of the black narrative is a piece of the same work because our story has been told from a white perspective. You know, the virus may be a form of wiping out the global narrative. That's that's good, Peter. Everything I need is made someplace else. And every place I want to go requires a car or an airplane to get to. It's really a consumerist narrative. Consumerism is the modern religion. And uh, maybe this is an assault on this modern religion, trying to put it back in its place. Even the language of consumerism are consumer goods. I think we're deconstructing consumerism much in the way that many have deconstructed Christianity. Take this away. Is there anything left? You can't go anywhere. If you can't go to a meeting, what do you have left? Illich once said to me, we were both at some conference in maybe Montreal or something like that. I might have been in Europe someplace. He said to me, do you notice how insignificant this whole thing is? Oh, is it Davos, Switzerland, right? <laughs> yeah. We're leaving it. Yvonne says how insignificant the whole thing is. <laughs> right. And I said to him, well, how could we do something that would be significant? And he said, let's you and I call a conference where you can only come if you walk to it from wherever you are. <laughs> Then he says, meaning will be there rather than uh, a trading of words. (laughs) You know, the Appalachian Trail is, what, 1,100 miles long, and people walk it all the time. We could do that, John, and give people enough notice so they could start early enough. (laughs) (laughs) When he first moved to Cuernavaca, he would set out with uh, with some clothes and a shawl and start walking. He might walk for two months and he'd go to villages and he'd sleep in, uh, in the entrance to the church on the steps. And uh, he was doing this as a pilgrimage, but a pilgrimage in, in which along the way, he was learning every day from people who are in the vernacular world. I've always said, why the hell couldn't I do something like that? I mean, you know, pick up, talk about departure, Peter. (laughs) Right. right. Pick up, get your shawl and go. (laughs) (laughs) Get out of the, get out of the car. (laughs) I I think, Peter, your insight that, that the virus is destroying the narrative of globalization. I think that's a, That's an astonishing insight. This is wonderful. I just feel the urgency of keeping focused on these things. And I really think the Common Good Collective is trying to uh, bring as many people into the conversation like the one we're having. Thanks for listening. Before we go, we want to bring attention to an upcoming offering from the Common Good Collective. In this time of social isolation, we're becoming increasingly aware of our interconnectedness and the need we all share for true connection. And yet we have a long way to go. 
and have come a long way to recognize the importance of inclusion of those with disabilities. With that in mind, check out the show notes for links to the Common Good Collective's reader and a conversation with Al Etmonski on April 27th at the Common Good Collective's Abundant Community Conversation. The Common Good is hosted by me, Rabbi Miriam Turlinship, and produced by the incredible Joey Taylor with music from Jeff Gorman.